He's always judging Ruth. He's no, wanting to know where she is, but that's, it's right in the middle between Joshua and Ruth. Um, that's the way I remembered it in Bible drill back in fifth grade. Um, so anyway, uh, as I said, we are in the Old Testament today. We're studying through the book of Judges, and uh, I'm going to do a little bit of a review just so you kind of know where we are uh, and what's going on. If you weren't here last week, I'll pray, and then we'll, we'll jump in. So um, you can go ahead and put up the Old Testament slide. There's a, there's a a slide in there that gives you an Old Testament time frame. It's going to come up any second. But when it comes up, uh, you can understand where Judges is in the Old Testament. Because sometimes most of us aren't necessarily familiar with the Old Testament. We don't know uh, where things are going on. So over here in the very left, you've got creation. And over here in the very right, you've got the end, the 430 before you get to the period where God doesn't speak until Christ comes. And so as you're going through here, you can see right here at 1399, this is the period of the Judges. And that's where we are. Before we get to the kings, after they've left Exodus, uh, Egypt, and come into the conquest, they're, they're coming in here and they're coming into what is their promised land. And the promised land that they're in is filled with the Canaanites. There's all kinds of people in there that the Lord has told them, these people are in this land and they should not be in the land. And so whenever you go into Israel, you need to get rid of all, all of them. All of the Canaanites need to be totally gotten rid of out of the land. If you leave any of them around, then what's going to happen is you're going to... Uh, intermix with them, whether it be through marriage or friendships. You're also going to adapt their gods to be your gods. There's going to be some polytheism that is going to happen now where you're going to still believe in me, but you're also, polytheism is belief in many gods instead of monotheism, belief in one God. You're going to believe in me, but you're also going to believe in their, their gods too. They're little G gods, and it's not going to go well. And he tells them this uh, in, in the previous book before Judges in Joshua. He says, for the Lord has driven out before you, your great strong nations, and as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you <clears throat> puts a fight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. If you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you, that's if you, when you go in there and you leave the Canaanites there and let them stay with you, if you do that, And make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you. Know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. But they will come a snare and a trap for you. A whip to your sides and thorns in your eyes. Until you perish off this good ground that the Lord has given you. So they've been instructed. uh, These Canaanites who by the way are just wicked terrible people. These aren't great people that God's getting rid of. These are wicked terrible people and saying when you go into the land you want to get rid of all of them. Now, as you go into the book of Judges, the theme of the book of Judges is, is basically the, the downward spiral of the immorality of the book of, of, I'm sorry, of the people of Israel, where they, they have a period of where there's a little bit of, of, little, little bit of hope because a judge comes in and helps them and saves them for a period. Uh, they cry out, but then they, as soon as the judge dies, they, they go even deeper into their sin. We'll even see some of that today. Every time that happens, they, they, they're depravity gets even worse than what it was before. And as we're going through the book of Judges, uh, the, the last verse, Judges 21, 25, kind of helps us understand where they had no king and everyone did what, what was right in their own eyes. The book of Judges and this downward, as you get to the end of the book of Judges and you're all the way to the downward spiral, you can say, everybody's so bad, why is this in the Bible? It's because it's helping us see just how far sin will take people when there is no God, when there is no king. And so it's, at the very end it says, there is no king and they did what was right in their own eyes, which is always bad. We can see that today whenever people, what, they do what's right in their own eyes today. And so 
it shows is, that Israel has a really desperate need for a king. And in the same way, without us, without Christ, our king Christ, we will also spiral down just as wicked and just as evil to the depths of the sin of depravity that we can go. And we will do what's right in our own eyes, which is always wrong. And so as we go through this, we're going to see they need a king just like we need a king. We need King Jesus who's died for us on the cross. So uh, as we're going to go through, we, saw, we started last week and we had the introduction where... Um, we saw that kind of the, uh, the consequences of being a half-hearted follower of Christ and what it means to be a whole-hearted follower of Christ versus a half-hearted, uh, half-hearted follower of Christ. And now as we go into chapter 2, we're going to see what would be, uh, what are the key ingredients to being able to remember the gospel? And why is it so crucial for us to be a people who remember the good news? Because we don't. We don't remember it as often as we should. So let's pray, and then we'll jump into Judges chapter 2. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time. We ask that you would help us as we uh, go into your word. Um, We desperately need for you to come and teach us and instruct us. And so, Holy Spirit, we are totally dependent upon you this morning. Um, And and God, we we have people from all over uh, their spiritual walks this morning from from new to Christ to being a a believer for a long time. And so, uh, because of that, that that certainly can make it a, a daunting task for me to try to uh, preach to everyone in the room in a way that is helpful and beneficial. So I can't do that, God. I can't do that. So you can. And so come and speak through me so that all the things that I say would be helpful for everyone here, including myself. And more than anything, God, we pray that we would see Christ as the most beautiful reality there is and that uh, our affections would be stirred for him and that we would Uh, hear and receive and understand the beauty of the good news of Jesus that he came and died for us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Something I grew up with, right around this time always happened. We'll see if you catch on. If you do, feel free to sing. Uh, It happened in the early 90s, so I might show my age here, but we we just went into the summertime, and so every time this happens, I always hear the song. Let's see if you can catch on. Here it is, a groove slightly transformed, just a bit of a break from the norm. Come on, just a little something to break the monotony of all that hardcore dance that's gotten to be. It's just me, a little bit out of control. It's cool to dance, but what about a groove that's suiting? It's just me. Okay, well, anyway, I'll stop because no one's going to sing with me. This is the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air uh, back in the 90s, back in high school. And uh, so I'm dating myself. But no, it's okay. I, I used to listen to a lot of hip-hop and rap a lot. back in the day. I can sometimes with, just with Greg, we can sing rap together. But it's sometimes it's just me and Greg. But anyway, uh, my point is this. Every time we just, we just moved into summer. And every time we move into summer, I start hearing that song all around. And it takes me back to high school. It makes me think um, about being in high school. Music has the way of causing us to remember things. Anytime you hear a song that you've known for a long time, you start thinking about, oh man, I can remember back then whenever things were easier and simpler and life was easier or whatever. Music has this ability to do this, right? Uh, it causes us to remember. Remembering is good. And, and a lot, in most ways, remembering is a good thing. God wants us to remember uh, and he wants the Israelites to remember. And so whenever we come into this text in chapter two, verse one, he's doing that. He's, he's causing them to remember. Now, when we read it, you're probably not going to grab right into it, but he is certainly wanting them to remember something. He's wanting them to remember his overflow of grace to them back whenever they were uh, slaves in Israel, so uh, in Egypt. So if you look at chapter two, verse one, it says this. Now, <clears throat> the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum. 
Bochum, probably. So you read that and you're like, okay, the angel of the Lord did that. But what does that mean? Well, it's very significant because whenever you see the word Gilgal, that hasn't been mentioned since Joshua chapter 5. And so whenever the angel was in Gilgal, which has happened a long time ago in Joshua chapter 5, and comes up to Bochum, which is where they are, we're going to see in verse 5, Bochum is where they are, and that's where they're going to weep. They're going to, um, they're going to repent of their sin, etc. And they're going to call that place Bochum because they sacrificed to the idols. Uh, they made sacrifices to the Lord. But we see that he actually came up from Gilgal. And so it's helpful for us to know, well, then what happened in Gilgal? What's going on? So if you go to Joshua chapter 5, it's just one book to the left. Joshua chapter 5, we're going to see what it is that if, if the, the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal, he's warning them, remember Gilgal? Remember what I did for you there? Don't you remember? And he's pushing them and driving them to remember where that Joshua had met the angel of the Lord previously. And it's where Yahweh had told them in Joshua chapter 5. If you go to um, Joshua chapter 5 verse 9, it's where he said that he's rolled away the reproach of Egypt. Look at verse 9. And the Lord, when you see all caps, by the way, that's Yahweh in the, in, in the uh, Hebrew. If you see a capital L and then lowercase O-R-D, that's Adonai. There's, they all mean God, but the, the capital L-O-R-D is Yahweh. That's the word they wouldn't even say. They would just say, when they would read the text and they say, and the, instead of saying Yahweh, they say, and the Adonai, even though it said Yahweh. Because the Lord's name, Yahweh, was too, too beautiful to even say. That's just for, for free. But verse 9. Um, and then the Lord said to Joshua, today... I have, here it is, rolled, that Gilgal means to roll. I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Now that's key. If, which, if you don't know what that means, they were slaves in Egypt. So they, they, were, um, they were reproached because they were slaves in Egypt. And he's saying that I have actually taken away the mark of slavery away from you, taken you out of slavery and brought you into the promised land. So when we're over here in Judges, he's reminding them, remember how you were slaves? Remember that? I took away that reproach from you. I rolled all that away and I've actually ushered you into the promised land and given you this land and all you have to do is be my children and I will be your God and you'll follow me. But remember what I've done? Remember what I've done? So here he's telling them that he has rolled away the reproach that has come upon them. Tim Keller says this about Gilgal. This was the place where God had forgiven their sin, bound them as his people, and had entered into a a relationship with them by grace, motivated only by his loving kindness. So he's beckoning them in chapter 2, verse 1, before he goes into the rest of the chapter, to remember the good news. Remember the gospel and what, what he's done. So here we can obviously see, you can go to the number one. You can obviously see uh, the, the immediate application for us. Before we even go further in the text, God is doing the same for us. Number one, that we must also remember, rehearse, preach, however you want to say it, the gospel to ourselves. God is beckoning us constantly, just like he does in the beginning with them, to say, if you're going to be a person who's going to keys to remembering the gospel, you've got to constantly preach this gospel to yourself. You've got to remember it constantly, that we also were slaves to sin. And that God brought us up, not out of Moses, but by Christ, brought us out of slavery to sin and will one day ultimately usher us into the promised land and to heaven. And Christ is the one that paid the price for us, who forgives us, who is our Moses that brings us out, and who is ultimately our David, who is our king. 
And so here he's telling us that you have to constantly be able to remember this. It's so key to remember to preach the gospel to yourself. This is a a lengthy quote, but it's so good. There's a man named Jerry Bridges that wrote a book called The Practice of Godliness. And he he instructs us just how crucial it is for us to, as he'll say, preach the gospel to ourselves every day. This is what he said. If God's love for us is to be a solid foundation stone of devotion, we must realize that his love is entirely of grace, that it rests completely upon the work of Jesus Christ and flows to us through our union with him. Because of this basis, his love can never change regardless of what we do. That's key. I want to make sure you hear that. His love for us can never change regardless of what we do. That's for us who are in Christ. For unbelievers, that's not the case. They have to be in Christ. But for those that are in Christ, his love for us can never change regardless of what we do. In our daily experience, we have all sorts of spiritual ups and downs. Sin, failure, discouragement, all of which tend to make us question God's love. That is because we keep thinking that God's love is somehow conditional. We are afraid to believe his love is based entirely upon the finished work of Christ for us. Don't miss this. The reason why God's love will never change for you, the reason why it's unconditional, not conditional, is because it's solely based on not how great you are or good looking you are or how much work you do for him and you gave this much money to the church or you served this much this month. It's not based on that. It's only based on the, the finished work of Christ for us. That's way more rock solid than our giving or our church attendance or our serving or whatever. Whatever you think makes us have a right relationship with God. Deep down in our souls, we must get a hold of the wonderful truth that our spiritual failures do not affect God's love for us one iota. That his love for us does not fluctuate according to our experience. We must be gripped by the truth that we are accepted by God and loved by God for the sole reason that we are united to his beloved son. So remembering is actually crucial then for our obedience. The better we remember, the better we obey. The more we rehearse the gospel, the more we preach the gospel to ourselves, that our relationship is not dependent on our fluctuation of, of how, we, how we live, but instead only on what Christ has done, we actually obey better. Because every one of us, if we're honest, I want to obey. I want to I do what Christ wants. Well, the more we remember, the better we rehearse the gospel more to us, the better we obey. God sees that any failure, Keller says, God sees that any failure to obey is actually a failure to remember the good news. The root of our disobedience is essentially failing to remember who he is. The root of our disobedience is essentially failing to remember who he is. So when he says in verse 1, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum. He's wanting them to point their minds all the way back to what happened in Joshua chapter 5. Helping them understand that he brought them out. Now we're going to see here in verses 4 and 5 some positive effects of whenever we preach the gospel to ourselves, whenever we remember the good news, whenever we remember what Christ has done, we'll actually see some, some effects. We're going to see that in 4 and 5, but we've got to get through uh, these other verses where he basically helps them understand that they have to follow him. So, uh, and he said to him, I brought you out of Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore I'd give to your fathers, and I will never break 
my covenant with you. That's, that's key. Because as you go through this book, as you go through uh, the Old Testament, you'll see over and over, gosh, is God breaking covenant? It's always the people of God breaking covenant with God. It's not God breaking his covenant with his people. And then it says, uh, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall uh, make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now, when we get to this particular verse two, it's in light of, verse, of chapter one. So you have to remember last week, whenever we were looking at chapter one, where God said, go in there and destroy all the people that are there. And they're like, okay, hey, uh, other tribe, you know what? We gotta go in there and break down them. So what you do is you come help me and I'll come help you and we'll kind of help each other. That's in the first half. And in the second half where they went in there and they're like, ah, it's just too much work to beat all these people. Let's just... Let them live here and we'll get big enough. And now we could beat them, but now we're just going to make them our slaves. And it's easier, better, and better for us economically just for them to work for us than for us to drive them out. You see all this compromise. And so when we get into chapter two, the the people of Israel, as they're rolling into chapter two, think we've obeyed God. Hey, we've driven out people. We've really done right. And so this this, uh, chapter two Verse or chapter two, verse two B, where it says, but you have not obeyed my voice comes to them as an actual shock. Like when they hear that, they're, they're virtually completely surprised. Like we haven't, what, is that true? So, but he needs to let them know in chapter one, where you think you've obeyed, you've halfway obeyed, halfway obeying is really just disobeying and you haven't fully obeyed me at all. And so he's telling this, I will not break covenant, but you have not obeyed my voice, which is why the good news is this. When God brings this, this, this message of you haven't obeyed me, remember what he leads off with in chapter one. I'm sorry, chapter two, verse one. He leads off with the gospel. He doesn't just say, bad news, you're bad. He starts off with the good news. You're my people. Remember what I've done for you? I brought you out of slavery. You, you are forgiven forever. And not only that, I'll never break covenant with you, but I need to let you know you're not obeying me. That's how he deals with us. That's how he deals with us. So now, verse three, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides. We already read that he was going to do that in Joshua 23, 13. Um, as, and then, and there'll be a snare. Now, here's what happens. When they hear all this, whenever they're confronted with the fact that they have not followed Christ, watch their response. Whenever we remember, whenever we preach the gospel, whenever it, it enters into us as believers, it should, ha- it should cause these things. These are, these are two effects, but certainly there could be more. Verse four, as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people, Israel lifted up their voices and wept, weeping. This is actually positive weeping, not negative weeping. This is good. This is positive. This is signs of repentance in their hearts and minds that they realized they have not followed God. This is signs of thankfulness being molded into their emotions. This, this weakness or weeping that they're having is actually a good thing. That's the first thing they do. And in verse five, and they called upon the name of that place, Bochum, Bochum, whatever you want to call it. It means weepers. And they sacrificed there. So when we see sacrifice, this means they worshiped. They worshiped God. So this is uh, an offering they're making. Temporary as it is, <laughs> certainly. You, we, we just get a little bit further into the chapter. And like, well, that was short-lived. Yes, it was. Um, and it, it just short-lived, 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 no doubt. But ne- nevertheless, whenever they remember, they worship God because he's holy. So two positive effects. Whenever we, re- whenever we remember the gospel, whenever we rehearse the gospel, preach the gospel to ourselves, which we're, we're, we're so commanded to do, we automatically see in verse four, weeping, positive weeping, repentance, worship. 
These are good things that happen whenever we preach the gospel to yourself. When you remember the good news, there should be times where you're crying. There should be times whenever you are worshiping. I can remember one time, this is embarrassing. Christy, remember this. Well, by the way, my wife's in church today. I just want to say that's awesome. She loves it when I call her out and let people know. But uh, the baby's getting better and she's here. So anyway, um, one day I was studying downstairs. And I was, as I was studying, I was listening to the song that talks about uh, the gospel. And it talks about how the fact that we as believers will always be brides. And will never ever have to just be bridesmaids for life, basically. And I remember listening to it and I just started crying. I was like, this is unbelievable. We're never ever just going to be at weddings and just be bridesmaids, but we're, we're part of the bride. And she walks down and she catches me crying just totally by myself. And she's like, why are you crying? I'm like, because we're never going to be bridesmaids. And she's like, what, what, what is wrong with you? But <laughs> she's like, like, who did I marry? So, but, but my point is this, right? That's exactly what was happening. The good news was, was, was tangibly coming into my mind and I was remembering and rehearsing and preaching the gospel to myself. We, we, are, we are forgiven forever. We are part of the bride of Christ and it, and it evoked weeping because I was so thankful at that moment. It was embarrassing because, you know, she walks down and catches me crying in the, by myself. And she's like, what are you really doing down here? I'm just remembering the gospel, really. Um, but it was embarrassing. But nevertheless, my point is made here is that whenever we remember the gospel, it should evoke these kinds of things whenever we are uh, preaching the gospel to ourselves. Now, when we get into this second section from 6 down to verse 15, we're going to see that there are deleterious bad effects when we don't preach the gospel to ourselves. When we don't do that, there are numerous things that happen. You can go ahead and put up number two, new word for the day, deleterious. It means bad. Um, there are deleterious effects of not remembering uh, preaching the gospel or remembering the gospel. So we're going to see uh, in verses six through 10 that whenever that happens, uh, we usher ourselves into poor leadership. Poor leadership happens. Um, and when there's poor leadership, we're going to see that there's uh, just poor leadership in the church. And there's poor leadership at home. That's what we can see in 6 through 10. And then the other side is we'll just see the, the negative effects in our own life uh, in verses 11 through 15 that we find ourselves living unfaithfully. So look at 6 through 10. When Joshua dismissed the people of the nation, I'm sorry, dismissed the people, the people of Israel went into its inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. Now, what we're doing here in verse 6 is remembering what happened in Joshua chapter 24. So if you go one page to the left in Joshua chapter 24, verses 28 through 31, uh, all he's doing in this, in this book of Judges here is just repeating the death of Joshua. That's already happened in Joshua 24, 28. So Joshua, uh, I'm in 24, 28 of Joshua. So Joshua sent the people away to his inheritance. And after these things, Joshua died, the son of Nun. He, the servant of the Lord died being 110 years old. And they buried in his own inheritance at uh, Timnath Sarah in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of, of Gash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders out, who outlived Joshua and had known all the work of the Lord for, uh, that, the work, that the Lord had done for Israel. So that's, that's, that's in Joshua. And what we're getting to here in Judges 2 is just remembering that. That they, their leadership has gone. And whenever their leadership has gone, um, it's going to go bad for them. They need, it's just showing just how essential good leadership is for the people of God. Not just for Israel, but even for us. I mean, it's, it's certainly a, a, 
a challenge for people who would be in leadership at Remedy, whether it's an elder or a deacon, any kind of leadership or even a staff position that you would be at Remedy. It's, it's crucial that we realize it's important that leaders be good leaders that point people to Christ. But you can see here that Joshua is going to uh, pass away. And it says in verse 7, the people who served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and they did a great work. Verse 8. The Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at age of 110, and they buried him with his boundaries and his inheritance at Timnath Hires in the hill country of uh, Ephraim, north of the mountains of Gash. And all the generations also gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation. Here it is. So after Joshua died, this is what happens when good leadership is gone. And after that arose a generation after them, who it is, who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So poor leadership comes in, obviously, because that happens. And so um, whenever he's mentioning Joshua here, before we get to the end of verse 10, it's really serving as a double effect. It's reminding them of the amazing leader they had in Joshua, but it's also showing them the standard that God desires for all future leaders, which will not be upheld, right? And maybe until we get to David, there's not going to be any good leaders that are going to be at the standard of Joshua. And it says... And verse 10, end of verse 10, there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. How did that happen? How did that happen? How is it possible that the next generation did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for them? We could ask it maybe this way. Who do we think is responsible here? Is it the next generation? Yeah. It is their responsibility. They're supposed to follow God, just like the previous generation. But uh, we can also, of course, say that it was the previous generation, their fathers and mothers and their leadership, that didn't tell them who the Lord was, didn't teach them to treasure who the Lord was, and didn't teach them to treasure what he had done. When it says they didn't know, it doesn't necessarily mean they didn't know the history, like they We don't even know what the Exodus is. What is that? That doesn't mean that they don't know that. But it probably means more that they didn't see the Exodus or believe the Exodus or understand the Exodus to be precious. They didn't understand that it should be something that they should treasure what God had done. Which means our next generation, if we don't teach them the gospel of the Exodus for us, of being pulled out of slavery and ushered into eternal life because of Christ, if we don't teach them that that is central, that that is precious, that is something that can never ever just kind of be like, well, we heard about this guy, Jesus, he died on the cross. What's the real important thing now? If we don't teach them that it's crucial, it's not central to us anymore, then the gospel no longer is central to the next generation. And that's what happens. The good news of what Christ has done wasn't central to them anymore. They didn't know the Lord and they didn't know what he had done. And remember, without remembering, there's no obedience. So their, their obedience dissipates. It goes away. The loss of leadership the loss, and where they shirk their responsibility of causing the next generation to remember, to know God, to treasure God, to know what he's done, to treasure what he's done for them, sends them on a trajectory towards corruption. That's why they fell into sin. That's why, humanly speaking. D.A. Carson, in his commentary on Philippians, 
not on judges at all, has this quote that has never left my mind that as soon as I saw this made me think of this quote. And this is what he says. And so it's about how crucial it is for us to remember the gospel, treasure the gospel, keep it essential, and continually pass it on to the next generation that they would do the same. He says this, one generation will believe the gospel and held it as well. One generation believed the gospel and held as well that there are certain social and economic and political entailments, but they believe the gospel. The next generation doesn't believe the gospel. They assume the gospel. uh, Of course we believe that. But identify it instead with the entailments over that, the social, economic, and political entailments. They think that the, the outskirts of the way you're supposed to do stuff is more important. Not believe it, we just assume it. The following generation denied the gospel. And only made the entailments everything. Just the being good person. And that's what can happen to us in our very next generation if we're not crucial. If we're not vigilant. If we're not watching at every particular moment to say, it's so important. It's so important that the next generation understand the good news of what Christ has done is so important for them to know that it is the main central thing. We know that the Lord has told us to do this. And he had told them in Deuteronomy Chapter 6, maybe you know this, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, chapter 6, fifth book of the Bible. It says this. This is what they were told to do in chapter 6, starting at verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, soul, mind, and heart and soul and might. And these words that I command to you shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your, on your gates. They've been told you're supposed to continually tell the next generation about who the Lord is and what he's done. If you go to verse 20 through 25, he highlights and you're also supposed to tell them what he's done. In verse 20, it says this. And when your son, you can say daughter, it's just, you know, being... All, all encompassing here. When the son asks you in time to come. So one day your son's going to come and ask you and say, what's the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that our Lord God has commanded you? You shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. That's interesting, right? What's the meaning of the law? Well, we used to be slaves. Wait, I want to know about the law. Yeah, I want to tell you what God's done first so you can understand the point of the statutes. Watch this. We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed us signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes. There's the answer. To fear the Lord our God for our For our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do this commandment before the Lord our God, he has commanded us. And what he's saying, it's so crucial. He's given these statutes to follow, but you just don't follow these statutes because there they are. Instead, remember that we were slaves. Remember how good he was to take us out of slavery and bring us into the promised land and usher us into this promised land and make us his children. And we're so thankful that he did that. That's why we have these. Because we remember and now we can obey them. We just don't obey them blindly because there they are. Look, they're written on a wall. That's, we remember what he's done for us. And because we remember what he's done for us, now our heart loves him and wants to obey what he said. He wants to obey. So observance, following, uh, doing what the law commands is not done 
out of some kind of guilt trip. It's always motivated by love. We love Christ because of what he's done. I want to obey, not I have to obey. And so here we see, without good leadership, there are deleterious effects that happen that parents and leaders haven't passed on to the next generation of what they should have done. And then you can see even more deleterious effects in verses 11 and following. There's, there's a good bit here. You can see, and the people of the Lord did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They served the Baals. The Baals in Hebrew should just be translated lower G ODS. This lower, they, they, they followed after, it's really actually lower L uh, lords. They, they had little, little, little lords instead of God. This means instead of following the, the living Lord, they served little mini lords, um, which caused them to do evil deeds. So that's the first thing is they did evil deeds. You can see, and they abandoned the Lord, their God and their father who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. So they, they became idolaters. Uh, Keller says, idolatry is taking, this is key for us. It's because you look at that and you're like, well, I don't ever bow down to some statue. So I don't have a problem with idolatry. Let's make sure we do Understand we have a problem with idolatry. As Calvin says, our hearts are idol factories, just constantly manufacturing over and over. Keller says, idolatry is taking a good aspect of creation, marriage, the beach, family. He actually said mountains, but I changed it to the beach because we go to the beach more than the mountains. Most of you. Taking a good aspect of creation. So I just want to make sure you know that I'm kind of quoting Keller. Uh, Marriage, the beach, family, business, and making it ultimate source of security and identity and power. Making that thing, whatever it is, the ultimate source of security, identity, and power instead of making Jesus the ultimate source of security, identity, and power. That's idolatry. You and I do that every day. We make something our ultimate security, identity, or power every single day instead of Christ. These are just examples. You could take anything. That's what they did. Whenever we don't remember and rehearse the gospel constantly, we immediately shift over to becoming an idolater. And they also abandon the Lord. You can see that in verse 12 and 13. Um, they provoke the Lord to anger. They abandon the Lord. They serve the bales of the Ashtaroth. And because of this, they're going to suffer the consequences. So the anger of the Lord was kindled, kindled against them. That's also in verse 12. The anger of the Lord was kindled against them uh, and against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. So uh, Because of this, negative things happened to them. Uh, The results of disobedience are people took their stuff and that the hand of the Lord was against them. Verse 15, whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them. So whenever they were trying to do what God commanded to go drive out the Canaanites, it actually had the reverse effect because of the disobedience. The hand of the Lord was against them. They weren't able to defeat the armies. And as they were sworn, they were in terrible distress. So as it finishes, it says, as the Lord had sworn to them, they became in terrible distress. Distress. This is actually a good thing. This terrible distress is a sign in their heart that they're actually going to be awakened to the fact that we've messed up and we need to turn. Now, I'm going to put something up on the screen for y'all. This is the, the cycle of the judges. The cycle of the judges. Over and over and over and over, this is what happens. And so you can see it. 
So you have the people rebel. God gets angry. They get oppressed by their enemies. The people cry out. That's what we just saw. They're in great distress. God's going to send a judge. He's going to bring peace. The judge is going to die. And what's going to happen? They're going to get doubled down into their, to their sin again. And then they're going to rebel. And God's going to get angry. They're going to get oppressed by their enemies. They're going to cry out in repentance. They're going to bring a judge. They're going to have peace. And the judge is going to die. And what's going to happen? It's even going to get worse every time. Every single time. Over and over as we go through the judges. This is the cycle of the judges. Repeatedly. But every time when it says that uh, the people rebel, that number one, it's worse rebellion than it was the time before. Over and over and over. And here we're already seeing that happen. They're in terrible distress. Um, but here's the good news. Put up number three for me. Here's the good news. Whenever, when we don't remember the gospel, even in the midst of our unfaithfulness, God can sometimes be even moved to compassion. God can still be moved to compassion. When the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand who did not plunder. Now, they were in terrible distress, which we can, we can discern this means repentance. It can also just mean they're freaking out. <laughs> ah, like, I don't like it. It could mean that. But it also can mean I'm freaking out and Lord help me. One or the other. But nevertheless, um, whichever one it is. And I think, it's, I think it's probably repentance and God's dispensing unusual grace upon people just like me that don't deserve it. Um, what he's going to do is raise up a judge. And we're going to see, he's introducing here in the end of, cha- end of chapter two, what we're going to see through the rest of the book, the cycle of the judges, the cycle of the judges. And so here he says, God's going to raise up judges for them. <clears throat> don't think of these judges as in they have big black robes and they carry a gavel around. They're like, boom, here's what's next. It's not at all. Instead, these are more um, militaristic people that come in and lead the people uh, in a way that, that drives out and gives, drives out people and, and gives the Lord um, victory and brings ultimately victory for the people temporarily. So these are more like fighters than Judge Wapner. Is Judge Wapner still alive? I don't know. But up, up, the people's court. This is Doug Llewellyn. Anyway. Maybe it's just me and like two people that are old enough to remember that. So uh, verse 16, the Lord raised up the judges. Judge Judy? I don't know. Anyway, the Lord raised, that's next generation. Y'all have whatever it is. All right. The Lord raised up the judges who saved them out of the hand uh, of those who plundered them. So what we're going to see in 16 and 18, 16's good, 17's bad, 18's good, 19's bad. Uh, so what we're going to see here is how the Lord's moved to compassion, but we also can see the downward ethical spiral of, of Israel and how it just gets worse and worse with, te- with these temporary judges. The Lord raised up the judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. So in Jesus's compassion, in God's compassion, in the Lord's compassion, he raises up the judge and gives them salvation through this chosen leader. This leader liberates them from their slave master and returns the land to peace. If that sounds like Jesus, it's meant to. It's exactly what it's meant to. God raised up a chosen leader. This leader liberates them from their slave master and returns the land to peace. But they only do it temporarily and Jesus does it permanently. God raised up the chosen leader, Jesus. He was alive already. I know that he's eternal. And this leader, Jesus, comes and liberates us from our slave master, sin. And whenever he does that, he returns the land to peace. In Genesis 1 and 2, there was, there was peace. And one day in Revelation, 
there will be ultimate peace again. So Jesus does it permanently. And so these judges are just kind of pictures of what Christ is doing for us ultimately. The only problem, as I said, is these judges are temporary and Jesus is permanent. Jesus is perfect. Jesus is everlasting peace. So that's where the Lord has moved to compassion. Even in our unfaithfulness, as Romans 5, 8 says, when we were enemies, Christ died for us. We also see here that the judge was with them. Skip down. So we're going to skip 17. Go to 18. Whenever the Lord raised up the judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of all their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. So when we see the groaning in verse 18, that's also the distress in verse 15, which just makes me think these are groanings of repentance. Um, so the Lord is with them and the Lord's moved to pity for them. These, this is how, in, in this third section, how the Lord remembers them even in their unfaithfulness and he's moved to compassion. And the same is true for us. Even in our unfaithfulness right now, whenever we aren't remembering the good news of the gospel, which isn't producing obedience, the Lord still abounds in goodness to us. He abounds in compassion. He abounds in grace to you. All you have to do is find yourself like these people. And, and, and the end of verse 15, be in terrible distress. Or the end of 18, groaning. There should be a point where you haven't preached the gospel to yourself and you've moved away and you're not obeying. There should be distress and groaning in your heart. That's good. It's not bad. It's good. It's placed there by a holy God who loves you. And that's for you to realize that you have um, not been following Christ. And you say, God, save me. Forgive me. I repent. And you remember the good news that you are in perfect relationship with him. That your relationship isn't changed one iota based on your on what you've done, but only solely on what Christ has done. And now you want to walk in repent and in, in obedience. So if you are finding yourself as a believer, walking in sinful practices like the Israelites here, the distress that you feel, the groanings that you feel are not bad. Don't push those things off as I hate feeling bad. Those are good things. Those are designed by God to cause you to call out to God in repentance and return to him wholeheartedly. Remember the fact that he's already forgiven you completely and now walk in obedience. Now, this won't be on the screen as number four because I, I wanted to end on, I wanted the last thing you write down to be real good <laughs> because this is the book of Judges. Um, it doesn't have happy endings. Um, ultimately it does, but temporarily and immediately it's not so happy. So in 17 and 19 through 23, what we're going to see here is the downward ethical spiral of Israel. This will not be on the screen because I wanted you to have a, a, a happy thing to, to finish with. But this is what we see here. Verse 17. Yet they didn't listen to their judges for they hoard after their gods, other gods and bowed down before them. Obviously this is at the end of every cycle. So at the end of every cycle, when the judge died, they would whore themselves out. Now this is very strong language. When we see this, we should, we should be like, that feels strong. <laughs> That's not what we, that's not the kind of language that we use today. And if we do, it's, it's pretty strong language. It's, it's present in Hosea, it's present in Jeremiah, it's present in Ezekiel when he talks about Israel. And what he's saying here, it's intentionally charged with lots of color, is to awaken the people of God to their wicked depravity. And what he's saying is, you Israel have become a married prostitute. That's what you've become. You are a married prostitute. Married people should not be prostitutes. No one should be prostitutes. But married people, every time, they're cheating on their spouse. And he's telling them, you, Israel, 
I'm, I'm your spouse and you're cheating on me over and over and over and over. So he's telling them that they uh, are prostituting themselves out because they don't, what? They don't listen to the judges. Look at verse 17. Yet they didn't listen to their judges for they hoard after other gods. They didn't listen to their judges, meaning because they were in such reckless depravity, uh, they found themselves there because initially they didn't listen to the person that God sent. They didn't listen to the person. So it's key that we continually find ourselves um, listening and following and staying close to the one whom God sent, which is Jesus for us, so that we don't whore ourselves out. And then after that, they become... We could say accidental, but I would say intentional polytheists. Now, polytheism is bad. Monotheism, belief in the one God, the one true God, mono meaning one, theism, God, that's good. Polytheism, belief in many gods, is bad. Israel moves from monotheism to polytheism. Polytheism is idolatry. It's, it's abhorrent to God. Watch what happens, verse 19. But when the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers. There it is. That's the doubling down. Every generation gets worse and worse than their fathers. Going after, here it is, other gods, serving them, bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or stubborn ways. So they become reckless, disobedient polytheists. Um, Do we do this? Do we worship Jesus with our lips on Sundays and sometimes during the week and then find ourselves becoming idolaters some other parts of the week with family, work, business, play, money, leisure. I think we can not just look at Israel and say, well, that's just them. We can also investigate our own hearts and make sure that we're not becoming accidental polytheists because we are are prone to idolatry. We're not just looking at them saying they're so bad. We should also look at our own hearts and say it's a terrible game to play to be an an idolater. And God's telling us that he will absolutely not tolerate it. Tim Keller says the greatest danger is not atheism, parentheses polytheism, it is, but that we actually ask God to coexist with us as our God with idols. That's the danger we play. And God does not tolerate it. He is literally against them because of this. I will no longer drive out them before you of these nations in order to test Israel by them, whether he take care to walk in the ways of the Lord as their fathers did. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand, and did not give them into the hand of Joshua. So we see here that um, God reacts in verse 21. God's motive of reaction is in verse 22. And the conclusion is in verse 23, that he won't do it. So here's some good application questions for us, and then we'll, we'll close. Am I willing to do whatever God says to me in regard to uh, any kind of levels of idolatry in my life? Am I willing to do whatever God says in regard to, am I going to be someone who recalls and rehearses and preaches the gospel to, him, to myself? As much as it takes, am I going to do whatever he says? And am I willing also to to accept wherever God sends me, whatever, wherever, whatever person God sends me to to help me? Am I willing to accept any of those things? If it's no, then perhaps we're holding on to our idolatrous ways. If yes, then that's good. That means we are being in t- terrible distress and we're groaning and we're having a soft heart that wants to repent. What we've seen thus far in the text is this, 
that they're not walking in God's way. They're not listening to his voice. They're not heeding his commandments. And they're not exclusively following Jesus only. They're following other gods. God has explicitly told them he will have no rivals and they're not repenting. And is this you also? Are you not walking in his way, not listening to his voice, not heeding his commandments, not following him only, having rival gods in your own heart? If that's the case, don't have rivals that compete with the Lord in your heart. Dispense with all of the idolatry in your life. Repent of those things and remember that he is your only king and your only savior. If you find yourself not heeding his commandments, not obeying him, it's likely because you aren't remembering what he's done. Which means we need to remember the gospel and we need to be diligent, diligent about making sure we tell the next generation that the gospel is the absolute most crucial main thing in their life. Remembering what he's done. So let's conclude with this. The good news. Here, God, in his compassion and in his mercy, in verse 16, he tells us this, uh, the cycle. The Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered him. In verse 18, when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of all their enemies uh, for all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. And this is the same thing he's done for us. In his compassion, he looked upon our horrible estate and he saw just how wicked and depraved we are. And even while we were still enemies of him, He raised up his own son to come and live a perfect life for us, to go to the cross for us, to die the death that we deserved. And then if we trust in him, all of Christ's righteousness can then be imputed to us and all of our depravity is given to Christ. And as Martin Luther says, the great exchange happens. And now all we know is right standing with God. All we know is that he has given us his holiness. That's the good news. And for those that are believers in Christ, whenever we don't preach the gospel and we find ourselves in idolatrous behavior or we find ourselves not following his commands, the, command, the, the, the thing isn't so, get better. That's not what he's saying. Christ isn't telling you, try harder. Come on, white knuckle it. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying, preach the good news to yourself. You're my son, you're my daughter. I love you more than you can ever imagine. You already have my righteousness. Therefore, walk in that. That's the good news we have. This is the great God that we have. He knows that we're incapable. We're incapable of obeying him without having the Holy Spirit in us and him dying for us, already forgiven us completely. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this good news. As we study this book, there are certainly going to be uh, challenging verses that, that confront us with our own hearts and our idolatrous ways. But Lord... You have given us Christ. You have given us an amazing hope that we don't have to uh, perish. But instead, because of Jesus, we have this amazing, amazing forgiveness being lavished into us. So help us remember the gospel, God. Help us constantly preach the gospel to ourselves. Remember that you have pulled us out of slavery, that you have brought us into ultimately forever your promised land. And right now we are ambassadors as we are here beckoning others to be reconciled to you. And so whenever we don't obey, God help us understand that it's largely a remembering problem. It's largely a remembering problem. We aren't 
remembering the good news because we are already yours. We love you, Lord, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to.